They say that nighttime is when the bayou comes alive. Not just nocturnal alligators stalking their prey, or bats cutting through the swamp gas rising off the river. Other things come alive, too. You can see their lights flicker in the distance, or hear their voices drift through the trees. On nights like tonight, when the full moon casts an eerie glow over the swamp, a lady in white seems to appear at the riverbank, singing softly, only long enough for you to catch a glimpse of her before she disappears. But her song still seems to echo downstream. Its lyrics familiar to you, the stuff of local folklore. When I die, I'm going to take the whole town with me. Just beyond the tree line, at the highest point in the swamp, a small collection of crosses are barely visible in the darkness. An unmarked mass grave that dates back 100 years now serves as a grisly reminder the lady in white kept her promise. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Manchac Swamp in the heart of Bayou Country and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Just half an hour northwest of New Orleans sits Manchac Swamp, a haunted patch of bayou that's said to be home to Julia Brown, the Lady in White. Swamp gas rises off the pea-green gator-filled waters, lined by moss-covered trees and populated by all sorts of things that go bump in the night. These days, the swamp area is isolated, but at the turn of the last century, it was home to a small town called Frenier. Frenier sat along the banks of the Pontchartrain River, it was a settlement built around the logging industry in the 1800s, 25 miles northwest of New Orleans. Around the 1860s, Julia Brown moved into town and built a small cabin in the heart of Manchac Swamp. Late at night, anyone boating through could see the eerie glow of candlelight leaking out from her windows, accompanied by hushed chanting. By day, Julia would sit in front of her cabin in a rocking chair. As townspeople passed in their boats on their way to the larger river, she would close her eyes and sing little songs about them. Her songs were prophecies, which had a knack for coming true. 
She was especially gifted at knowing when someone was about to fall gravely ill. Always within a few days' time, it would come to pass. And when someone did fall ill, it was Miss Julia they'd run to tell. Julia Brown was a voodoo priestess and a known healer. She would come to the cabin where the sick were held and perform rituals over them, often saving their lives. But not everyone could be saved. And for many of them, Julia Brown was the last face they saw before being lowered into their graves. As the years passed, Julia Brown grew more secluded out on Manchac Swamp, as Frenier's township grew around the railroad station on the opposite side of town. But still, every morning, as people passed her cabin, the aging woman would be out there, singing her prophecies, waiting for those in town to call on her to aid the sick. Then, one chilly morning in 1915, an old man came rowing down the Manchac Bayou, just as dawn broke. The fog was so thick, he could barely make out the shoreline as he navigated the muggy swamp. He saw a light in the distance, the flicker of a candle. He knew he was nearing Miss Julia Brown's cabin. He proceeded noiselessly, hoping she didn't have any prophecies for him that morning. As he drew nearer, he could hear her humming. He heard her rocking chair creaking on her porch. Then he made out the words she was singing. When I die, I'm going to take the whole town with me. The man could feel the hairs on the back of his neck prick. As his little rowboat cut through the fog, he could see Julia sitting on her chair, eyes closed, a smile creeping across her face. Again, she sang, When I die, I'm going to take the whole town with me. She never looked at the man as he sailed past her. He did his best to keep going without catching her attention. Over the next few days, more and more citizens of Frenier began to whisper about the song, about her prediction. Then, one morning, even stranger news came. Julia Brown was not on a rocking chair. Nobody had seen her all day. Concerned for their fates, a few men of Frenier went to Julia Brown's cabin to find her dead. News of her death spread around town quickly. People immediately began to fear for their lives, knowing how often her predictions came true. Finally, some of the women in town came up with a solution. They would hold a funeral for Julia, with every citizen of Frenier present, Perhaps, if they all came together to pay their respects, she would consider her prophecy fulfilled. They buried her on September 29, 1915. They threw dirt on her grave and wished her well, hoping the voodoo priestess would find rest. The next morning, the town was awoken by a horrendous storm. Rain tore through town and winds ripped through houses dark clouds gathered overhead. People tried their best to take cover as shingles were ripped from the roofs and shutters banged against their windows. But as the roofs themselves began to lift off the houses, the people of Frenier realized in horror that this was no ordinary storm. 
It was a hurricane. They tried their best to hunker down or run, seeking cover wherever they could. But the winds were so strong, their homes were torn to pieces. Within an hour's time, the town of Frenier was ripped to shreds, and the townsfolk were taken with it. It would be two weeks before people from neighboring towns would be able to make their way into Frenier. A group of brave men made the trek along Manchac Swamp on a cool, misty morning, much as it had been the day Julia made her horrid prediction. As they drew closer, the men could see something in the trees, too distant to make out. Something was draped over the branches. Slowly, they realized what they were seeing. Bodies. The townspeople of Frenier, dead, blown into the trees by the storm, now caught dangling like ghoulish Christmas ornaments. As they passed, the men heard the creaking of Julia's rocker, although her cabin sat abandoned. The hairs on the back of their necks stood on end. They pressed forward, hoping to leave the swamp behind as quickly as their boats would take them. When they entered the town, they found that the entirety of Frenier was destroyed. As far as anyone knows, not one person survived the storm. Bodies were unearthed from the rubble and hauled down from the trees and buried at the highest point in Manchac Swamp, just down the river from Julia Brown's cabin. Their graves were marked with wooden crosses and small stones, many of which still stand today, more than 100 years later. But those who frequent the swamp or come to pay their respects at the Frenier Cemetery agree that while Julia Brown may have gone to the grave, her spirit did not stay there. In fact, many believe she still walks the shores of Manchac Swamp. A lady in white can often be seen just beyond the tree line, still singing her lonesome song. When I die, I'm gonna take the whole town with me. Of course, as a spirit, she has found far more company than she ever had in life. The Lady in White isn't the only ghost prowling the Manchac Swamp. In a moment, we'll meet the local haunts keeping Julia company. Now, back to the story. On September 29, 1915, a Category 4 hurricane decimated the small town of Frenier, Louisiana, as predicted by the local prophetess, Julia Brown. Since the storm, many visitors to the area have claimed that a lady in white will greet them on the shores of Manchac Swamp, where her abandoned cabin still stands. By day, the cabin is small, rustic, and full of debris left from local teenagers who likely use the spot to have a few beers where their parents won't find them. But by night, the cabin feels cold and eerie. It's not uncommon to hear distant wailing or the sound of a woman's song drifting through the trees. 
Those who dare visit the nearby cemetery at night can often smell candles and hear the chanting of a voodoo ceremony. The soft scent of perfume wafts through the muggy air as though something is standing just beyond the tree line, watching over the graves. But Julia Brown isn't the only spirit to haunt the woods of Manchac Swamp. Years ago, a new bride was enjoying her wedding night at an old house just outside of town where Frenier met the Manchac Swamp. Her guests were dancing and drinking, and her groom swept her across the dance floor until she was dizzy. She took a moment to steal away by herself, a break from the excitement. The moon was full and lighting up the Manchac Swamp. It was easy for her to saunter into the woods, enjoying the night air. But as she strayed further from the party, something about the woods around her changed. They grew cold and eerily still, like everything in the swamp was watching her. Suddenly, the lights from the party behind her had disappeared, and she had no idea from which way she'd come. It was like the light had been sucked out of the woods, and a black blanket hid the stars from view. Her breath quickened as she clambered through the woods, trying to find her way out. But everywhere she turned, she saw nothing but trees and blackness. She closed her eyes and listened for the sounds of the river. If she could make it to the water's edge, she could find her way home or to the next town over. But the stone silence persisted. The air grew hot and thick, and the scent of death slowly filled her nostrils. She tried not to panic as she kept moving, retracing her steps as best she could, but she never seemed to get any closer to the edge of the forest. She froze and strained her ears. She spun her head around, trying to detect where the noise had come from. She kept moving, not sure whether she wanted to find out. She didn't know which was better, to move so silently that she could hear whatever was lurking in the shadows, or to make a run for it, hoping that whatever it was wouldn't be quick enough to follow. She took a deep breath and began running through the bayou. Two heavy footsteps began to thunder along behind her. They sounded pad-footed, like a wolf. As she ran, the woods tore at her dress, slowing her. She could hear the animal growing closer, and she knew it would soon tackle her to the ground. She tripped and fell, skidding her knee and hurting her wrist. She heard the footsteps growing nearer as her own shadow disappeared in the big, hulking shadow of a beast. She felt its hot breath on her neck. With all the courage she could muster, she turned to see an abomination standing over her glaring with yellow eyes, so wide they seemed to glow. The animal before her had the stature of a man, running on two feet, yet it was covered in jet black hair and had the face of a wolf, with two curled horns protruding from its skull. It stared into the eyes of the new bride, who cowered before it. She knew this horrid beast by name, though she had always thought of it as the stuff of folklore. 
a story to scare children away from running off at night. She tried to look away, but she had already locked eyes with the beast, the Rougarou. It seemed to hypnotize her. She couldn't even blink. The Rougarou loomed over her, its lips curling into a snarl. It looked deep into her eyes and warned her, within a year and a day, your soul will be mine. It was the Rougarou's terrible curse to last for one year and one day. If she spoke a word of this encounter to anyone during that time, she would be a Rougarou forever. And until then, she would turn into a Rougarou every night, until the curse was either lifted or sealed. The beast moved towards her. She worried it would eat her. Then, as quickly as it had appeared, it was gone. The color flooded back into the woods, and a short ways off, the bride could see the lights of her wedding reception. The warmth returned to the night air. It was as though nothing had happened at all. The bride made it back to the party and told her groom she'd been lost in the woods. That night, instead of sharing a bed with her new husband, the bride locked herself in the shed, barricaded the door as best she could, and awaited her terrible fate. First, a tingling sensation crept through her fingertips and up her arms. Her heart started to race, and a searing pain shot through her chest. It felt like her insides were on fire, like she was being stretched in every direction. She screamed in pain as her bones began to twist and splinter, and her skin ripped apart. Her skull began to split, and two horns protruded from the skin of her forehead. Black, twisted horns that weighed down her head and made her neck ache. Her screams morphed into snarls as she became a Rougarou. She railed against the inside of the shed, longing to feel the full moon on her face. But it was no use. She was unable to get out. Outside, she could hear the hulking beast that had turned her, stalking the shed. It scraped its terrifying claws along the side, trying to free her. If he could steal a glance at her before his curse was lifted, she would be turned into a Rougarou forever. As morning finally broke, the bride awoke with a start and looked around the cobweb-filled shed. She was alive, but her heart sank, knowing what she must do. For the next year and one day, the bride locked herself in the shed every night, and every night she could hear the Rougarou lurking outside waiting to catch a glimpse of her. When the sentence had finally passed, she nearly cried with joy. Finally, the night after her one-year anniversary, she and her husband could share a bed together for the first time. That night, when she came to bed with him, instead of going out to the shed, her groom asked her if, a year and a day ago, she had been stalked by a Rougarou. The woman admitted she had on their wedding night. That, she said, is why she slept in the shed each night. 
But now it had been a year and a day, and she was free. Then beads of sweat began to form on her husband's forehead and chest. Before long, he was covered in sweat, and his eyes began to grow wide and yellow. His teeth turned to fangs, and he fell onto the floor. As he writhed in pain, a spirit seemed to rise out of him and fly out the open window into the crisp night air. Her husband sat up, drenched in sweat and panting. His bride looked at him in horror as she slowly realized why her husband had never asked her why she slept in the shed. He had been the Rougarou, and now, as she had broken the curse, they were both free. But the spirit of the Rougarou was likewise free to roam the swamps beyond their home and find a new host to possess. Soon, there would be a new Rougarou. The story of the Rougarou originated in medieval France as a way to keep children out of the woods. The legend found its way to Louisiana, along with the French settlers. The Rougarou, a Cajun werewolf, prowls the bayou, searching for children, or Catholics who are living in sin. In fact, Catholics who do not participate in Lent for seven consecutive years are said to transform into a Rougarou overnight. The curse of the Rougarou is passed on through eye contact with the beast, although some believe it is spread through bloodshed. The curse lasts for a year and a day, or 101 days, depending on who you ask. And during that time, one cannot tell a single soul about the encounter, or they will become a Rougarou forever. There is only one way to keep a Rougarou from creeping into your home, should one be spotted in the area place 13 rocks on your doorstep. For whatever reason, the Rougarou can only count to 12. When it comes upon 13 rocks at a doorstep, it will try to count them and get so confused it will be distracted until daylight, when it either takes cover or dies in the morning sun. Sometimes a Rougarou will turn others into Rougarous, and sometimes it takes victims. It's unknown whether the Rougarou eats people, but every now and again, the body of a child can be found slashed in the street, and everyone knows what took the child to an early grave. But the Rougarou wasn't the only threat lurking in the trees. In a moment, the voodoo priestess claims the lives of those who come too close to her swamp. Now, back to the story. Since Frenier's founding in the 1850s, sightings of the Rougarou have slowed. And since 1915, hauntings in the Manchac Swamp have fallen to the wayside. But they never truly went away. Then, in the 1970s, a fateful bridge collapse got the nearby towns talking. Maybe the curse of Julia Brown wasn't as faded as they had thought. It was a cool September evening in 1976. Three teenagers were making the 40-minute drive to New Orleans for a fun night out. Michael sat behind the wheel. 
his headlights catching the trees as they zoomed past. The only part he didn't like about the drive was the stretch of road that passed over Manchac Swamp. Michael hated the way the swamp felt as he drove through it, dark and eerie, like a thousand eyes were glaring at him from the darkness. That night was no exception. He had been enjoying the cool night air, driving with the windows down, while his friends made jokes and messed with the radio. As they neared the swamp, Michael rolled the windows up. He knew it didn't make sense, but he felt like something might jump into the car. But his friends Chris and Steve nagged at him and rolled the windows back down. He asked them to stop, but Chris shoved him and told him to lighten up. As Michael began the long drive over the bridge, he heard a scream and slammed on the brakes. The boys looked around to see where the scream had come from. It sounded like a woman in need of help. Cautiously, Michael began driving again, moving slowly. There was adrenaline was racing. As he drove, the boys peered through the darkness, looking for the woman who had made the sound. They didn't know whether to stop and call out to her, or assume it was the wind playing tricks in them. The hairs on the back of Michael's neck began to tickle. This time, Chris didn't fight him when he started rolling up the window. Now they heard another scream, and something else too. Something otherworldly. Michael picked up speed, trying to race out of the swamp as quickly as he could. His friends kept their eyes peeled for movement beyond the train line as Michael tore across the bridge. Then Chris yelled and grabbed the wheel. Michael slammed on the brakes. Just ahead, the bridge was out. It had totally collapsed. Michael heaved as he realized how close they'd come to driving off the edge and plummeting into the water below. Soon, Michael realized they had bigger problems. One of his tires had popped when they'd swerved. Now, they were stuck. Chris got out of the car. Stephen, in the back seat, grabbed a flashlight from under the seat. The trees began to shake without any wind, and the boys heard a slow, distant voice singing a familiar hymn. Through the woods, Michael could see a small light, the flicker of a candle. He pointed it out to Stephen and Chris. They agreed to make their way towards the light, hoping to come across someone who could help them call a tow truck. The three teenagers began their slow trek through the woods. They heard a splash, and Michael turned his head to see an alligator disappear beneath the water's surface. He knew alligators were out searching for prey, so he picked up his pace, hoping it wouldn't be them. They kept on towards the candlelight, which flickered just ahead. Michael tripped over something and rolled in the dirt. Stephen shone the flashlight towards the ground. It took him a moment to realize what he was looking at. A headstone, split in two as if lightning had struck it down the middle. They were standing in the middle of Frenier Cemetery. The boys knew this place well. Their classmates loved to dare one another to spend the night here, sleeping among Miss Julia Brown's victims. Many believed the cemetery held magic power, that it was a door to another world 
waiting for someone to turn the lock. Suddenly, it didn't feel like such a good idea to continue forward. Chris egged the other two on, but Michael stood firm. Nothing good could come from following these breadcrumbs. Suddenly, Michael became aware of how isolated this location was. He suggested they go back and sit in the car, hoping someone would come along to help them. Chris told the others they were letting their imagination get the better of them, and they began to argue. Had they been paying attention, they may have noticed the wisp of white passing the graveyard, or the leaves on the nearby trees rattling. Instead, they were distracted, shoving one another, until Steve dropped the flashlight. It rolled towards the swamp and disappeared beneath the surface. Now, even Chris seemed to be scared. The last thing any of them wanted was to navigate a gator-infested swamp without a flashlight. Stephen sat down and suggested they stay put until morning. It was so dark, Michael could barely see the outline of his friends in the moonlight, let alone anything that might lurk just beyond the graveyard. They soon heard a sound that meant something indeed was lurking. The boys looked up, startled. Chris called out and took a few steps forward to investigate. The second he stepped beyond the cemetery, he disappeared, consumed by the darkness. Michael and Stephen waited. Chris crept into the dark woods, searching for the source of the sound. He felt a rush of excitement mixed with dread. Part of him loved being terrified. He heard the brush move just a little ways off. He called out, asking who was there. Then, just ahead, he saw candlelight flicker to life. He hesitated for only a moment before deciding to trek through the brush towards it. He couldn't shake the feeling that the world around him was growing darker, that he was being followed. As Chris grew closer, the outline of a small cabin came into view. He knew this cabin. It had once belonged to Miss Julia Brown, the voodoo priestess. Michael had warned him against angering her. After all, the last time she was angry, she took an entire town to the underworld. He could hear her rocking chair inside the cabin. A chill skittered up his spine. He turned on his heels and made his way back to his friends as quickly as he could manage. He called out to them, hoping their voices would help guide him back. But no reply came. He was annoyed, knowing his friends were within earshot. He wondered if they were bickering again. He began to try and retrace his own footsteps in the mud, as best he could in the dark. But it was impossible to see. Everything around him was silent, save for the squeak of Julia's rocking chair. Meanwhile, Michael and Stephen waited in the cemetery with bated breath. Then they heard Chris call out in the darkness. Michael answered and waited. Chris called again. Michael answered again. Then, after a moment, they saw him. Michael called to him, but Chris didn't seem to hear him. He didn't even look at them as he walked across the graveyard. 
Michael and Stephen called to him, but he paid them no notice. Then Chris called out to them. Confused, Michael answered. But Chris didn't hear him. He just kept walking. Then Chris turned and looked directly at Michael, but he didn't seem to recognize his friend. In fact, he didn't seem to see anyone standing there at all. His eyes looked glossed over and white, like he was possessed. Terrified, Michael started towards Chris, but with every step he took, his chest tightened, and he found it hard to breathe. He stopped, and slowly, his racing heartbeat went back to normal. Michael and Stephen looked at one another in terror. Stephen threw a small stone at Chris, but he didn't flinch. He just kept walking and disappeared into the blackness of the woods. Michael and Stephen were frozen to the spot. Every time they began to move, their hearts would race and their chests would tighten. It felt like a heart attack. They assured one another that the curse would only last the night. This was the work of Julia Brown, and her curse would lift at daybreak. Then they would find their friend and get back to their car. But of course, this was the bayou. And while people may have deserted it long ago, there were still many creatures who could find the men before daybreak, especially when they had no way to run. They heard the gator's heavy tail sliding along the ground long before they saw it. Beads of sweat formed on Michael's brow as he realized it was coming straight for them. He could hear its hiss as it wandered into the graveyard, soon to add their bones to the many beneath their feet. Michael and Stephen tried to run, but they instantly collapsed with chest pain. They tried throwing rocks at the predator, but it was undeterred. It had been a long time since a meal this easy had come its way. The boys screamed as the alligator began dragging them towards the swamp. By morning, all that was left of them were the claw marks their nails had made in the mud. The three friends were never found. They are among the many who travel into Manchac Swamp, never to be seen again. Some say they fell victim to the Rougarou. Others believe they became gator food. And some are certain that even in death, Julia Brown sits on the porch of her cabin, deciding the fate of those who pass by. If you're very quiet, you might hear her song and the creaking of her rocking chair. And if the mood suits her, it might be the last thing you ever hear. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. 
Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Aaron Lan. I'm Greg Polson.